You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Jim Wolfrey, and you're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. But before I introduce our great coach, this episode marks our 50th. And in recognition of this, Paul and I would like to thank all of our loyal listeners from all over the world for their ongoing support, our families for their love and encouragement, and also to all our great coaches who have made this journey something very, very special. Our great coach on this special 50th episode is Dr. David Parkin, who is a former coach and former player in the Australian Football League. David played 211 games for the Hawthorne Football Club, captaining the club from 1969 to 1973, and was part of their 1971 Premiership winning side. He started coaching his old side in 1976, leading them to a premiership in 1978. He then coached the Carlton Football Club to successive premierships in 1981, 1982, and again in 1995. He is just one of six coaches who have coached over 500 games. He is also a noted academic and author. He received an Australian Sports Medal in 2000, and a Medal of the Order of Australia in 2013, and in 2010 was inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. David is an iconic coach with a deep-seated wisdom that only comes from experiencing both the highs and lows of elite sport and life. And in this interview, he talks about both. He is philosophical and self-reflective, and yet possessive of the pragmatism needed to turn this into action. He is also a lifelong learner, and sharer and always available to offer mentoring, or as he calls it, being a critical friend to those that ask. In this terrific interview, we cover how his failure as a coach in the early 80s led to a review of the club that ultimately caused him to engage a sports psychologist who helped him implement a player leadership group, one of the very first in Australian sport. His learning that leadership as a coach needs to be flexible to meet the experience, competencies and confidence of the playing group. And the importance of having the type of relationship with your athletes that allows you to understand them as a complete person. And the research he shared that supports that this approach gets better performance 
and ultimately helps the person transition from the sport to the next stage of their life more successfully. Having David as our 50th great coach was a real highlight, and I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as we did. The Great Coaches Podcast. So good afternoon, David Parkin, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. That's very kind of you, Paul. I'm, I'm delighted to be with you. We're very happy that you could find some time to talk with us. But David, I might start with something really simple. So could you tell us where you are today and, and how was your day? What did you get up to? Yeah, COVID sent me off. I have a heart condition. I've got a pacemaker and uh, my physician said, run away somewhere where you're less likely to get this disease. And uh, fortunately, I have a holiday house down at Point Lonsdale on the Ballerine Peninsula through Geelong. It's a beautiful spot. I've done all the jobs over the last seven months that I've been looking at for the last two decades. And I've got some lovely neighbours and supportive friends down here. So it's been pretty good. So good I might and go home, but please don't tell Gail that. <laughs> that secret safe with us. So David, I'll jump into the questions. I've been really looking forward today because you've had such a storied and diverse career. And I'd like to start with perhaps talking a little bit about the first-hand experience you had of the great John Kennedy. You've also been an academic, published around a dozen books. I can't find the exact number anyway. And you've been a mentor to many other great coaches along the way. But what do you think it is that the great coaches do differently that sets them apart? Well, it's interesting because they're all different. I was most influenced, obviously, by John Kennedy, but I didn't have either the personality or character, whatever you like to call it, that he brought to the task. I was adopted and absorbed into a method of play, which I didn't know any different, so I thought it's the only one, but it was so far away from what I produced, I think, as a coach over my 20 or 30 years in it, that the difference between me and John in totality was at one end of the continuum to the other. But he was a magnificent human being and... I think probably other than my parents, Paul, probably influenced my life more than anybody else I can think of. He was a brilliant orator, a great teacher, a human being who considered the well-being of others in a sense that's off the field sense. I'm not sure he cared too much about what happened us when we were playing as long as we produced what was required but he, he's, a, and if you talk to people now, and we, when he just lost him, I was fortunate to do the eulogy for him a couple of weeks ago. I did go up to Melbourne for that. I felt it a need too. But when you talk to all of the, the players, I guess, yeah, the players of my time and before and after who were influenced also by John, he's a significant human being in terms of the lives that we all led. And uh, whilst I didn't coach anywhere near using the kind of philosophies did. He was an unbelievable philosopher. We get a bit of Karl Marx and we get a bit of the Bible and we get a bit of Winston Churchill in the pre-match addresses. There were very few on the end of that. So I was in the front row. Most of the other blokes were bought out of their brain, but he was a great orator, an English literature teacher, so well read, etc., and could use the English language like no other person I have ever met. He had such a profound influence on you and then you've taken that influence and gone off and I think, David, you were one of the very first coaches to really talk about a philosophy and writing your philosophy down and building your philosophy and making sure that you stuck by it through your career. But I'd like to ask, how has your philosophy changed from when you started out in the 70s through to today? Yeah, and I think it, not only with me, I needed to change. Thank goodness some people and some experiences changed me dramatically in in the middle of my coaching career. But your philosophy and you need to change it. I think what I've written, I've just written another book. I've written my autobiography, not for public consumers, but for my family, colleagues and friends, basically to thank them for the influence they had on me and the joy that I had in life and the support they gave me, etc. So I've been enjoying this time in COVID uh, to complete 18 months of writing. And it's interesting when you go back and check who you were and what you did and how you actually did it in comparison to those three things 30 years down the track and now sitting outside the game 
and watching others at work doing the very things that I did with a different population. The athletes of today are so different, the young people coming through, and the methods that they're working with them are completely different, sometimes opposite to what we did. So I philosophically changed on the basis that my approach, I think be fair to say, my approach, Paul, changed dramatically on the basis that we failed miserably at a time when we were expected to win. We went into a grand final in 1993. You're probably old, old enough to remember that. but And played Geelong, who smashed us in the finish. And we'd finished on top and had beaten them during the season. Pretty sad day. And then a year later, we finished on top and went out in straight sets. I think my memory's not good, but to Melbourne. Yes, I can't think who the second one was, and I should remember that. We'd failed miserably with what talent we had. What we did, and I, I, did, I think I sort of provoked it, was to do a complete review of our organisation. And I, I mean, it's common nature in all organisations now, but I brought an outsider in, a fellow called Paul Burke, who's, if you'd know the books, I've co-authored with him a number of books. He was working, a player who I sacked, Paul, without him playing a game. And he came back and asked for some help in the next stage of his life was to get into commerce at Melbourne University. And we had a Carlton contact, don't tell anybody, we had a Carlton contact and I was able to get Paul a place. And on the back of that, we remained great friends and he became the CEO of a worldwide company and took me on the journey with him. And that was a fantastic education for me as well, having that parallel view of the world. And Paul did the review. And if you ever saw it, it's the most complete review of an organisation you could find. And I think we, there were 16 suggestions that came from that that we should do something about. And I reckon nine of the 16 were directly related to my failure as a coach. And I cried for three days, but decided we'd do something about it. One of the recommendations, and I think it's interesting, Paul, that I've worked with psychologists at the university, with sports psychologists, etc., and to that point, I'd never found one who I thought had both the training and the experience to make a difference. But they were demanding, my players, that our problem was not really technical or tactical, but a psychological problem that we had, even though we thought we were the best, with the best methods, etc., we weren't able to produce when it was required. So I looked for a sports psychologist who had some success, and you probably know little bit about Anthony Stewart, but Anthony had worked with the Australian netball team and they dominated the world. He worked with the Australian basketball team and they had done brilliantly. He'd worked with the Hawthorne Football Club and they'd won about five premierships uh, during that time. I thought, we'll go and offer him a job. We took him out for dinner and at the end of the dinner, I, I made him the offer and he very gently but nicely said, I couldn't work for you and I certainly couldn't work for John Elliott. So we shook hands and he walked out the door. Well, Anthony's a bit susceptible, like everybody, to a very good financial offer. So we went to his house and seduced him with money, which is a terrible thing to say. And he won't, don't for goodness sake, play this to him. But he accepted Roland came. And within three months of just walking around and observing, he finally came to me, because I didn't know what he was doing. He finally came to me and made the suggestion that we have a very very, very experienced, very, very capable and very, very committed group and we should give it over to them. And I thought, heck, like, let the lunatics run the asylum. That's not going to happen from my point of view. He said, well, think about it, which I did overnight. I came back and said, no, I can't do it. He said, how long's your contract? I said, well, it's actually one year. Well, would you suggest that if you don't win this year, you'll be out of work? And I said, oh, I think that's absolutely correct. So we, we set up the first, I would think, in Australian sport, the first leadership group, and it was an unbelievable number. There were, I think, 14 players who fitted the experienced, committed and capable profile. And we brought them in, and no one still believes to this day, but they decided 
each week in 1995 who would play. So they selected their own team. They decided how we would play. We would sit down with the coaching group and that group of players and work out the tactical approach we would take to beat this group that we were playing against. They would do as every team does now. They review their performance, talk openly and honestly about what I did as an individual and what we did as a collective. And they decided what values and behaviours we'd live by and what the penalties would be for anybody who transgressed in not living up to the, the behaviours or the values. And they did exactly that. They dropped people from the team. They condemned them to extra work and all sorts of things when that actually happened, as it did during 95. So on the basis of that, I had little to do. I was a part of that group, but they controlled all that we did. Now, that for that group, who were, as I suggested, very experienced, etc., was right. So what I was learning, unbeknownst to me, was that leadership should be flexible. It should be applicable to the group of that particular time. Two years later, it's the end of 1996, that group came to me, six or seven of the leaders came to me and said, we don't have time to do this anymore. It's over and above what our expectation is for what we're doing. We have our premiership under our belt. We'd like to give the ownership back to you. I was really annoyed because I thought we had something special, but it was no good asking to do something which they decided they couldn't. So I took some of the leadership back. And then I reckon two years later, Paul, to be truthful, that's five or six years down the track, we had a bunch of kids, very inexperienced, not terribly capable and not very confident. And I needed again to take over total control and become the not the dictator, but the authoritarian in what, when, how, etc. So what I learned, and I think the lesson out of this, and I think it's for all coaches, is that you must be flexible in the style which you bring to the individual or the group according to where they are in their experience, competencies and confidence. I think that's the critical issue that I bring out of this. And we've seen this happen now time and time again not only in Australian football, but across all sports, that they have become flexible in their leadership, i.e. their coaching style. It's a great story. And I want to thank you for sharing because I, I was going to ask you about setting up player leadership groups because you're well known for being one of the very first people in Australia anyway to do that. But I'd like to talk about empathy if I could as well, because I was listening to an interview you gave, a very short interview, but it was from last year when the fourth AFL coach had been sacked in a year and it was Ross Lyon that had been coached. And you said that you felt that the need for empathy had increased dramatically, particularly with the players these days, they were almost demanding it. And so it got me thinking that if I was to ask you to design a coaching syllabus today, what would be the competencies that would be right at the top of that page? That's a really good question, Paul. And I think I could answer it simply and easily. We're still coach education has evolved dramatically in this country over the last three or four years. One of my closest friends, Laurie Woodman, headed up the coaching Australian Coaching Council. It has been demolished, which is a bit sad. And the manner which we're, I guess, educating or training, I don't know what the word is, educating coaches, seems to be there's a bit of an abyss at the moment. We're not doing it, I don't think, nearly as well as we should, but I can't tell you what the best method would be. There's a lot of online stuff which is happening. I'm not sure that companies can be built that way. The greatest asset for me was to have what I would call mentors, for want of a better word, better still, critical friends who knew you, loved you, knew your business and could tell it to you exactly. And I think I was only talking to the Adelaide coach who's been struggling without a win, was a level three graduate of ours some 10 years ago, brilliant student within that course, contributed magnificently. I thought somewhere down the track, he'll become an AFL coach, which in fact he has, but he's had a miserable start. And he was looking too for what would help him through this. And it's a, ter it's a terrible time when you're under the spotlight and your team just can't get up and win. 
I don't think it's a great team at the moment, but it's a better team than the performances which has been producing. And you go back into a shell. So if you don't have someone in your life who knows you extremely well, who knows your business, that is your specific role in that business at the moment well, who is available, can watch you at work, can hear you at work, can work with you regularly, then you're in a pot of bother. You're in, a, in real trouble. And I'm not sure that Nixie has that in place at the moment. I'm sure he has, but I'm, I'm not certain that he has the mentor or critical friend or friends who I had over and above. You have the John Kennedy type influence, etc. But I had a fellow called Ken Herbert and Ken was tough. He played league football at 16 and district cricket in Melbourne at 17. But he went off to the war and he became a rear gunner in the Battle of Britain, flying into, into Europe and back when every second person's a rear gunner was being killed. He did 37 trips and he was a tough bloke. He knew footy, understood people and could give it to me like no other person I've ever met. I was terrified and horrified in a real sense, but grew to love this man who became the single most important influence in terms of my coaching development and understanding of the game. And you need those because there are times and you can't rely. And I, he was deaf. He, was really going, he went deaf, lost his hearing and couldn't hear me sometimes on the phone if it was clear. But most times, and I've still got his letters, most times I got a letter to say, why in the name of heaven in the post-match didn't you give your players some hope for the future? I can't believe a man who's been around and done what you've done could be so stupid, signed Ken. I get that kind of letter. And the next week, having been rolled in a game we shouldn't have, the next week we went to Brisbane and we got beaten by 19 goals or something. I can't remember. It was no 10 or 11 goals by Brisbane. This is in a year that we end up playing off in the grand final, I think 1999, might have been or 1999, I think 99 it was, we got beaten by Essendon. Well, we beat Essendon in the preliminary final. And it was on the back of Ken's letter, because we were walking off the ground at the end of having been beaten by 11 goals in Brisbane. And Ken's note to me was ringing in my ears. And I walked in and confidently said to the players, well, can't be much worse than today. But we've got West Coast coming to play us next week in Melbourne. They can't beat us over there. We beat, we're the only team we continue to beat them over. And we will flog West Coast. And we did. And we got to play in that preliminary final against Eston when we shouldn't have been there and actually won it by a point. So what I'm trying to say in a long-winded way, I'm sorry, but long-winded way of saying, but having that, I call them critical friends, who can give it to you in a way that you need to hear it, who do have the experience and background and understandings required to have them in your life is critical. And I'm not sure that, well, I can only talk about AFL coaches, really. I can't talk about others, but I'm not sure that all AFL coaches do have them and are open to the kind of suggestions and input and feedback which they can provide. So that would be a long-winded answer to the question. It's not long-winded at all, David. It's fantastic. We spoke to Eddie Jones and he employs a yep. critical friend, uh, Neil Craig. And he yep. was talking about having coffee every morning at 7am, reviewing what they've done, preparing for the day ahead. So I think it's definitely something that comes up at least twice now in our discussions we've been having with great coaches. Paul, can I add to that? Because Neil, Neil and I became really, really good mates and his influence over a multitude of coaches, not just Eddie Jones, but a multitude of coaches, and not only in rugby, not only in Australian football, but of course in cycling, is legendary stuff. I'll have to download your, the podcast to, to listen to him, I'm sure. We'll make sure we send you a link for that one. It was a masterclass, spending it and some yes. time with him. And he did talk about Charlie Walsh as well, uh, which was fascinating. But David, I'd like to just build on this idea of a critical friend, actually, because one of the things I read in preparing for today was when you said that all coaches are in effect teachers, but it's not just about instructing students. It's a two-way process. 
So I was wondering if you could also talk about some of the things that you've learnt from your players over the years. Yeah, and that's, a, that's an even better question. What, what I think we fail as coaches, we get so absorbed in the coaching role, teaching, coaching, helping players to get better so that they can perform well and the teams that we coach can win. And that's an obvious role and recognition of all coaches in all sports. But I think what we've failed to do in this country, and I don't know that it's all that much better now, what we've failed to do is to talk about the complete player, the player as a person beyond their ability to perform whatever they perform as the athlete or the player that they are. And we've struggled with that. We now have most clubs who do employ a welfare manager and someone who's responsible for that. That's fantastic. But we were the first, another, I'll take that, but we were the first we employed as a man in management state status, we employed the first, I guess, player support staff who has been a wonderful friend, a bloke called Laurie Fabian, who still works for the Institute of Sport in Queensland. And he was the first to be appointed as a manager on a manager's salary. And with, I think, three and a half, well, it might have been, I'm not sure, be making it up, but a really good budget to work with. And he was full-time and he was responsible for what the players were doing in their development other than footy. Now, the research, Paul, has been fantastic. I sat on the research board up until last year for the AFL and they were spending a lot of money, a lot of money, millions of dollars on trying to make the game better for players, umpires, coaches, supporters, all of that sort of spectators, um, trying to try do that. And they worked really hard at it. And they spent a lot of time trying to work out, and they did, really good piece of research says that if you are sincerely committed to something else other than your football, that is your holding down a job, even though it might be part-time, you are studying, you are doing an apprenticeship, you are doing, as we had, we had a program which Laurie set up in a Care for Kids programs at local schools, or if in fact you're doing song and dance like Shane Crawford. If you are, the research is very powerful. Research says you will perform better during your career if you are, in fact, involved in a more balanced life. That ought to be fundamental for every club, ensuring that every player does get involved in something other than their footy in a sincere and committed way because if they're being selfish, they'll get a better performance from that player. What we don't know, and the research hasn't been done, and I reckon it should be done as quickly as possible, is if the player has, during their career been involved in those things that we said, has a balance in their life, will they in fact make the transition into non-player better, more effective and last longer? Because we have a horrible problem in sport around the world, not only in Australian football, sport around the world, that so many athletes, when they complete their life in football, I just saw some research the other day, Paul, that suggested that 62% of American footballers are bankrupt within a decade of completing their career. Not 6% or 16%, but 62%. What are we doing, in fact, during their playing and performing careers to enable them to make that transition into a good life, which is sustainable outside of football? They all think they're going to be a journalist or on television or on radio and obviously that's not so so I think there's a massive hole to fill in terms of ensuring and demanding within the salary cap etc they even have those people up until this year those were employed as welfare managers they even have put that in the salary cap which is ludicrous should not be there at all we should be and that's funny that the, we have a piece of research Paul which is interesting that suggests that Every player, every season at the moment, is allowed to evaluate how well their club looks after them as a player and looks after them beyond their playing, their playing performance. And it's unbelievable. The club, and this has been going now eight years, 
one of my students at Deakin does the research. I know it won't get out of your podcast, but anyway, it's out now. The clubs all get back the feedback, not about all the other clubs, but how they rate in the competition. It's a funny thing that Geelong Football Club, who've been pretty good over the last decade on the field, who employ more people than anybody else in welfare, have the greatest response from their players about how well they're looked after beyond their football. Seems to me that very high relationship, very strong relationship is what every club ought to be aiming to do so that we can better the game, but we can better the player whilst they're playing and certainly when they're making the transition into non-player. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that, uh, David. It's a, it's a great statistic. And I'm sure it, it will stay true over a longer period of time as we continue to get more data. On the, on the theme of data, actually, we were chatting with John Buchanan, the famous Australian cricket coach, and he talks about you influencing him quite heavily with your focus on tracking sacrificial acts, which you did in the year 1995 when, when you won the premiership. Huh. He said that he tried to sort you out, uh, seek you out to, to understand more about the, the data point you were collecting and seeing if he could apply it to cricket. So what I'd like to ask you is how did you develop this idea of sacrificial acts and if you could just explain a little bit about how how you applied it to the team dynamics that year. Again, it's player-driven. I wasn't smart enough to think about this, but the players in their discussion, the many meetings that they had, said, well, kicks and handballs are okay and the only statistics we ever get back from you, we do get a coach comment, which I defined for them. So they got how I felt, but I said, this is only how I felt. Other coaches might have felt differently, and other, and your mum and dad probably, but this is how I felt. But the players themselves came up with the idea, and it took us a couple of years to develop the concept, that those who were working hard without the ball, who were spoiling and tackling and karating and shepherding and doing all those little things which no one recognised, should come into their evaluation of their performance on the day. And they work very hard to come up. I think there are eight things in the final classification that we trained two people or the players when they were injured trained two people to recognise, observe them on the field and record them against the player. And they got so excited about that that the, the group said, can we put up, we don't want anything else put up on the board each week, but we want the sacrificial act of the week the player's name and what they actually did at that time to be placed on the notice board for everybody to see. So that became quite a focus and interest. I'm glad John John Buchanan (laughs) remembered it. I thought it was just a bit harder to devise something that worked Paul in cricket in the same way. I'm not, not so sure that game lends itself to it. But the sacrificial acts became a really important component because we're able to recognise and reward those players for things which aren't necessarily seen by most people when they're watching the game. So it became very powerful. It was, and it continued. And we knew that I think if we got to, you know, we're making this up now, but I think it's 80 plus. If we got to 80 plus, we did not lose a game in five years. When we dropped underneath 80, we lost as often as we won. So it was a fair sort of a measure, which the players, not me, I wasn't smart enough to think of that, but which the players 
put into place, Paul, that became a real focus for them. And they loved seeing their name up here. And I think during the game, it inspired them, motivated, whatever that word is, to do the things they might not have done otherwise. David, in 2004, you, along with Paul Burke, who you mentioned earlier, published What Makes Teams Work, where you went around and you interviewed successful CEOs and sports coaches on the topic of teams. 16 years later, it's still so relevant. It's a great read. I'd like to ask you, though, when you were putting that book together, what were some of the most surprising things that you uncovered? Look, uh, yeah, that's, that, that is a good question. It was a real eye-opener to me because I had little to do with industry, commerce, etc. cetera. Uh, I think I understood what was happening in most sports, but was fairly, well, dumb, I suppose, when it came to the other areas. And I, I look, I must admit, I... The people I'd worked with and worked for, I worked for Dunlop Rubber for a couple of years when I first left school. And at that time, and probably for most people in most places, the autocratic leader who put pretty heavy demands on people to produce by no other way but putting expectations on you and measures that you had to meet and, and outcomes that you had to produce, I was quite pleasantly surprised by some of the people that we met to do the interviews with in, in terms of the business, etc. It was fascinating to me. We interviewed them and asked them what they thought was important and then asked permission to interview the people they were leading. I don't know that that came out in the book. You'd be surprised, Paul, how many, a number of so-called great leaders in this country, I think we interviewed 13 including two females, only two, should have done more than that. I think two we left out of the book because they refused this access to their people to understand what, what they were doing. They were both men, but what they were doing was acceptable and influential and helpful to those. Now, what came out clearly to me, and it's the same theme and probably I adopted it, was Yes, we want to be assisted and directed. We want to be, we want you to be for us open to suggestion, but we want you to be interested in us beyond our capacity to produce whatever goods or services that we're producing. We want you to care about us as people. And that really ignited my interest along with the sports psychologist in developing that kind of approach. And it underpinned for me that what we were doing, whether we could outwardly see it or not, was important to the players. Paul, I meet my players. In fact, David Mackay rang me yesterday. It's years since I've talked to David. But in these times, we sit and contemplate and think, and he made a call to thank me for something which I did to him. Nothing to do with football at all, which took him down a pathway that he's been leading ever since was to assist him to go and get some qualifications in a particular area. And I think the best thing for me as an old retired coach looking back now is that my players really did know, I might not know that I cared about them as much as I should have because I was very demanding of them. I was a real prick early in my coaching career, I must admit. But I did care about them and for them to understand that and then to come back and talk to me now, and there's one just a few days ago, years after I finished coaching to say, thank you for helping me down the pathway that I'm still treading today, which has almost in all instances nothing to do with footy or their football lives. So that to me is the greatest lesson I could give to coaches. If you care about your players beyond their capacity to produce the athletic performance which you are requiring and demanding of them, you will in the first instance get a better result performance-wise, but in the long term, you will make a difference to this person for the rest of their lives. That, to me, is the greatest input and satisfaction that any coach should Conceive. Well, I might love the fact that I can tell people I was a premiership coach, but it's far, it piles into insignificance now in comparison to the lovely conversations I've continued to have with my players 
not so much about their footy. That does come in. We have reunions, etc. but more about the lives that they've lived since. David, I read with interest when you said that confidence in what you believe is negated rapidly, particularly if a coach loses their way. And we talked a little bit about Matthew Nix earlier, calling you yep. and wanting to chat about the performance of his teams. But what learnings, thoughts do you have on dealing with self-doubt as a coach? Yeah, look, that's interesting because initially as a player, I struggled like all other players to hold form when injury or other mental, I guess, approaches were failing me. And I worried about that for my players. And back in the in 1977, I think we started what we ended up calling, I've got one on the shelf and I had a look at it the other day, it's fantastic. We started making visualisation tapes, which meant that we could edit out all of the good things that you did and were capable of doing on the field and put them into a continuous reel or tape. We were the first to do that. I want to take, take a bit of innovative joy in knowing that we were the first in Australian sport to go down that field. And it's now followed avidly by all athletes and all coaches. We had a great film before the 1978 flag, which is a, and the players could take away at any time, sit down and watch their tape. Didn't have to be done to cover anything. They could have a copy of that and do it. So reminding yourself, and I guess we say, well, how do you get the first good performance? Well, that's the problem. Uh, we can use visualization, Paul, if we've got something to visualize. But at an AFL level, with, with Nixie at the moment, for instance, he has produced some wonderful performances which he could visualize. And it doesn't have to be on tape, but he can think about the confidence that we all get by what we've done in the past certainly helps us with future difficulties and mountains to climb and problems to solve and all that sort of stuff. So it's easy, it rolls off the tongue. Self-confidence is very easy to say, but to get it into people and maintain it in people, particularly in demanding and difficult situations, is not easy. But in the finish it, it's the thing, it's the one component of your makeup which decides whether you'll win or lose or achieve or not achieve or complete or not complete what you're supposed to. David, you, you talked earlier about, very quickly actually, about the oration for sport and social change that's named in your honour at Deakin University, the lecture that's given every year. And you talked also about John Kennedy, your most famous coach, perhaps one of the most, if not the most famous AFL coach of all time and his oratory skills. But it seems that the pre-game address is being lost to the game. It seems that a lot of coaches say you can do more damage with the pre-match address and they're not using it. So I'm just wondering what your views are on the role of the pre-game address in today's sporting world. Well, I could have answered it very categorically up until last weekend, but they went into the rooms and saw Luke Beveridge, the case of Western Bulldogs, at work. And it was a brilliant piece of oratory about the boxer who got knocked down three times in the first round, stayed with it, fought on, and won a technical knockout in the 10th round. And it was a fantastic, where they are and where they needed to go, it was a fantastic story. I love that sort of pre-match, post-match address. I was, the, as I said before, in the front row for John Kennedy and his addresses, were his oratory was just terrific. But there is no doubt that we've, we've moved past now. They're coached by about five or six different coaches. If they all get the same message, well, that's good. I'm not sure that they do. I'm not sure that we need all those coaches either, but this problem we have now might see the coaching staff of football clubs reduced significantly and quickly, which is not good for those who are in work, but I think it would be better for the game. So oratory, you speak to them, what it is, pre-match, quarter time, half time, three quarter time, post-match. You have five addresses every week. So if you're a lousy orator, I don't care what you have to say and what message you're trying to get off, but if you're not good at using the Queen's English, then you're, you've got a problem. You're going to get somebody else to do it for you or do it on film or whatever way you're going to do it because it still has a role to play. I think, as you suggested, less, much less significant than it was. I think the work has been done and we understand that the habits that have been formed during your preparation of what is what will 
come on the ground. There's no doubt about it. But I think we all, in a little way, are inspired by the visual picture that somebody can paint for us. And I don't know whether that's before a game or it could be during a game at halftime. It could be at three-quarter time when something needs to be done. The great three-quarter time address that I'll never forget was John Kennedy's. And it's quite an interesting story because John Kennedy said at three-quarter time in 1971, well, if we're going to go under, <laughs> that's not a very positive thing to say, if we're going to go under, we'll go under gloriously. So Don Scott, who I was captain, I didn't think of anything to say or do anything. John, Don Scott dragged the group back together and he said, what do you mean, get done? We'll beat these bastards, you know. And brought us up. He stood, you might remember, but he jumped up at the first bounce after three-quarter time and hit the ball to centre-half forward. It bounced over Alan Martello's head. Bob Kitty ran onto it and kicked the first goal. And we're up and away on the end of some very strong oratory from the great Don Scott. And it is quite funny because John Kennedy never was one for for giving us any kudos. I'm still waiting for the day for him to put his arm around me and say, well done. Most of us, most of us are. But Don Scott rang me probably two years ago on grand final morning and said he just had a phone call from John Kennedy. And I said, oh, that's interesting. He said he rang to tell me how well I played in the 1971 grand final. I said, oh, Don, that, that is that's fascinating. Oh, how lucky you are. You'll be the first Noni player. He said, there, yeah, he said he'd watched it. And he went, I said, oh, Don, well, congratulations. I said, oh, yeah. So I got off the phone and got a bit upset. So I rang John Kennedy and I said, g'day, John. I said, I want to thank you for making your phone call. He said, what's that? I said, I believe you rang Don Scott and tell him how well he played in the 1971 grand final. I said, Don was so excited. He's rung all his four friends to tell them. He said, oh, don't be like that. I said, no, you've got to understand that this is a significant moment in your life. I said, look, do you have my phone number? And he said, yeah, I do. And I said, well, when I hang up, can you ring me and tell me how well I played in the 1971 grand final? He said, sorry, Dave, I won't be making that call. And I never got that call from John Kennedy, which was a bit sad when he passed away. But that, that's an absolute true story. David, you've been very generous with your time today. I have one final question, if I may. And you've talked a little bit about it through this interview, but I'd like to ask the question directly. And that is, what is the legacy that you want to leave as a coach? Oh, that, that looks a different. You probably have to. I don't know whether I've left a legacy at all, in a sense, except for what I was, I was lucky. When I coached the 78 team, which had been beaten in the 77 grand final. So I got a ready-made team. 81 and 82 was on the back of 79 and they finished just about on top in 1980. So I was blessed again. Went back to Carlton. I had to build the next one. I think the last one, 95, was a slow and strong build. But I was lucky enough to go into clubs that were administered very well and had recruited outstanding players. So best bit of advice, you want to be a good coach, get good athletes, get talented people to work with because they, they help. But I think in the sense, I hope I'm, I am remembered for someone who did care about my players in a sincere and committed way. I did things and spent time ensuring that they were looked after as people. Got a lovely letter from Michael Sexton's father when he came back from overseas to thank him for the input. Not Nothing to do with coaching him and Michael's playing of his football but how I was able to engineer him into chiropractory and for him to be running the business, having the life that he now had and gave him the time off during football to complete that. That is the kind of legacy that I hope that I've left, that people may not remember me except as a very autocratic dictatorial coach. I think most would remember that way, but I hope the other side, which is not well known, is remembered more by my players than what we might have achieved as a group on the field. David Parkin, it's been a, an honour and a privilege to chat with you today. Thank you very much for your time and good luck with any of the remaining house repairs that you've got ahead of you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Paul. Good to meet you too, Jim. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Paul here. 
You have been listening to our discussion with David Parkin. David is a legend of Australian rules football, so it was terrific to get the chance to speak with him. The key parts of the interview that resonated most with me were the importance of having mentors, or as he calls them, critical friends, who can give you the direct, honest feedback that you need as a leader. The research into successful teams in the corporate world that he undertook that led him to the finding that people want you to care about them beyond their capacity to produce the performance which you are requiring of them, the use of visualisation to help build confidence and counter self-doubt, and wanting to leave a legacy where he is remembered as someone who did care about his athletes in a sincere and committed way and spent time ensuring that they were looked after as people. I hope you enjoyed it as much as Jim and I did. In our next episode, we will be speaking to World Cup winning cricket coach, Mark Robinson. I think my, my way full stop is to try and normalise everything. So a lot of the feelings that we have, it's, it's normal to feel. Most of my career in professional sports, that wasn't the case. You're meant to be strong and not show weakness. So I would generally try and normalise everything. So I, I'd always say things like, you can't be brave unless you're not scared. You, you can't be brave if you're not anxious. It, it just doesn't work. The work opposite. You know, you can't be happy unless you know what sadness is. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share, then we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.